The following podcast is made in partnership with Zinc VC. Why is the built environment important to climate change? We all live and work in buildings and they provide us with shelter and warmth, belonging and protection. However, the built environment is responsible for a huge 39% of all global carbon emissions. This 39% can be divided into two distinct impacts. Operational carbon, which is from heating, lighting and cooling our existing buildings, which is responsible for 28% of our emissions, and embodied carbon, which is from the materials our new buildings are constructed from and from their transport and construction processes, and also from the replacement of materials and components over the life of the building and impacts from the demolition and end-of-life processes, which is responsible for a further 11% of global emissions. At its heart, Sonia Alavera's work examines complex cross-disciplinary problems that emerge in the designed environment, taking a novel approach to developing new insights into complex climate change phenomena in this space. Trained in architecture and construction management and engineering, she founded the Radical Architecture Practice for Sustainability Network in partnership with leading design practitioners and researchers in Sweden, the Netherlands, Portugal, Austria and France, and is a thought leadership specialist advisor to the Design Council, a board member to the World Green Building Council, as well as scientific and industry advisory member of numerous scientific committees, including the newly launched New European Bauhaus Collective. Currently, Sonia is leading the delivery of multi-research and innovation projects aiming to transform the interrelated energy governance systems to account for complex multi-phenomenon and multi-scale interconnected encounters between humans, non-humans, spatial, socio-technological and environmental dimensions of everyday life. Her recent work carried out for accelerating design capacity and capability for net zero modular housing delivery was selected for the House of Lords Science and Technology Select Committee's report, Building for Change. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you. Thanks, Kyla. It's great to have you here. Obviously, we had you at our podcast launch party a couple of weeks ago. And I have to say, I'm still thinking about a lot of the things that you said. It was a truly um, inspiring session and definitely eye-opening. So I'm really looking forward to our listeners being able to get inside the amazing mind of yours. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was an amazing evening, actually. It was it was really imaginative and inspiring, and and so many you know wonderful stories. So it, it kind of stayed with me too, you know, from what everyone else was saying. I think there's something really magical about having, I mean, for those who are listening who obviously weren't there, we had a panel of warrior women who were talking about how to transform the industries that are doing the most harm to the environment. And one of the questions that I asked was, in fact, that's probably quite a great place to, to kick off because it's the thing that stayed with me the most was I asked each of the warrior women on the panel, if you had 10 minutes in front of the House of Commons, what would you ask for? And do you remember what you said? Actually, it was, what would you ask? What policy would you try and change, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've, I found that quite tough because I think a lot has been said and you know, lots of people have done some amazing things. And I feel that those 10 minutes probably wouldn't be incredibly meaningful, certainly not in the current kind of governance regimes we have. 
And and I feel we've lost our senses. I kind of feel that we need to get back to our senses and understand each other much better. And, um, you know, evolve a, a different set of dynamics of how we communicate and upskill our, our decision makers. If I had 10 minutes, I would say we need to understand what knowledge is and how we view evidence and how we you know, make decisions. Um, and I do feel that those 10 minutes, I'd love to talk to decision makers about what they rely on and how we can, you know, upscale in a collective way to draw on multiple types of knowledge and different kinds of knowledge, not just scientific knowledge. Uh, as we live in an increasingly uncertain environment, we need to draw on lots of different types of knowledge, experiences and senses. I mean, I think one of the things that you said in that conversation was, well, I'm not sure I would want to talk about changing policy because policy change doesn't actually lead to change, which I think is probably one of the snappiest lines <laughs> you could put together. And it's definitely something that I felt when we were at um, She Changes Climate, which I'm on the steering committee of, when we were at Glasgow last year for COP26, there was a sense of we're all talking about how we need decisions to be made, but actually we maybe need to look at the format and who's in the room in order to get to better decisions. So there's definitely a role there for, for looking at, as you say, the types of, of, of collective intelligence and also the formats in which we're making them. Going back to a different type of knowledge and intelligence, can you just tell us a bit about, I guess, you and what's led you to just one of the, probably the snappiest, coolest titles so far for a warrior in this podcast, a radical architecture warrior. What's been your personal experience that got you into this field? So not your academic experience, which I know is vast, but your personal experience that, that's got you into thinking differently about the built environment. Yeah, I had to think about this quite hard because actually I think it started very early on. Um, and, you know, my first experiences of a building site were when I was about six years old in Baghdad in Iraq. My dad worked on large construction projects and, and often, you know, construction team family schools were located within these construction sites. So even from a very young age, from about the age of six, I got to see, you know, kind of daily transformations that took place, but also what struck me were the people, the noise, the dust, and, and actually the hardship involved. You know, whilst I was mesmerized by, you know, these structures, the spaces, the experiences being created and recreated, what was sometimes months or years on a daily basis, I was really puzzled by the lack of regard for the beauty of the locality we were in. And, and this varied. I lived across the Middle East, but also in Central Europe. And, you know, as a family, we followed projects, um, as a lot of people working in construction do. Um, and, you know, throughout that time, I always returned to and spent our holidays with my Serbian grandparents in a village in central Serbia. And whilst part of my life was about these large construction sites, travel, lots of languages that I had to learn, change of schools and climates, Another part was, you know, quite opposite um, and was full of nature, a kind of stillness and an appreciation of senses where every living being, plant and other species was sensed and lived with. My grandmother in particular was, you know, taking a lot of care. And I think I'm only appreciative of this in my more kind of recent um, adult years to make me aware of the impact we as humans had on everything around us, how plants were breathing, how other species were breathing, what they needed, 
was our daily conversation. And I wasn't appreciative at the time. I don't think I listened enough <laughs> to what I was kind of, what was incredible knowledge that was being passed on. And it's only come to the forefront of my thinking, I think in the last couple of years. And raps came about in a way inspired by my grandmother and those conversations about needing to sense, needing to sound, needing to appreciate other species around us and other living things that also breathe and live with us, whether plants or, or other animals or anything around us. Um, and I felt that within the built environment, we were becoming desensitized and we were appreciative of what was around us and the impact we were having. So I would say from a personal experience, my grandmother, as well as those construction sites, they were kind of polar opposites had um, a huge impact on why I'm driven to do this. Um, but I'd, I'd say my grandmother, more than anyone, inspired me in, in her daily talks and, you know, explanations of things she had experienced from a young age um, that, you know, are still with me. So it's had a huge impact and I, w and I did not appreciate it as a young child at all, as, as no children do. <laughs> it's, you don't really listen to the adults around you that much, do you? No. And RAPS obviously is, is radical architecture practice. We, um, this is a complete random sidestep, but I've been watching How to Change Your Brain on Netflix. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's a documentary all about psychedelics and each one looks at a different psychedelic and how it could change our brain and it's really well done there's been a number of shows of course about this but it's really well researched and it's really set within a historical context a medical context as well and one of the things that really struck me about it was talking about how the type of thinking we have as an adult is very much one type of consciousness whereas children of course they kind of walk around in this heady state which is not dissimilar to a psychedelic journey of being seeing a plant and stopping and saying oh my goodness look at its you know look at its petals look at its colors um looking at the sky i mean this is kind of makes you want to cry but my 8 year old daughter i remember last summer she said, gosh, how beautiful is this planet and how lucky are we to live here? You know, obviously working in the climate action space, that was pretty hard hitting to hear. And when I hear you talk about different senses and sensing into environments, I kind of interpret it as a feeling of almost like a childlike connection again. And I wonder if that, if that makes you think anything when I say that, if that is, a, is an interesting way of maybe thinking about what you're saying in a more relatable, less academic way. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think we all sense our environment around us. We've just become very busy and quite mechanised and certainly in industrialised nations, perhaps have less time to properly listen. Uh, and, and, you know, we have over the last sort of decade or so needing to retreat and, and go off, you know, to, you know, meditate. And, and that should be a daily Thing. We should appreciate where we live and, and how we live, um, not just as human beings, but as other species as well. You know, when we are designing and planning for buildings, you know, when do we ever ask what other species use this space oh, and, wow. how, and, and how do they use it? And why are they not at the board table? Oh, and my gosh, is... I love that so much. <laughs> I'm just imagining tiny little ants sitting there with their little ties on at the table. Yeah, but I, I think, you know, this is, you know, we, we have not 
appreciated this. And I, over the weekend, I listened to uh, some recorded interviews from a philosopher called Bruno Latour. And he talks about how we are moving into a new world and that our past world was very object orientated and we extracted an awful lot without really thinking about the living things around us. And we are moving into a new set of dimensions and a new world where we are sensing those living things around us much more. Perhaps not all of us, but an increasing number of us. So I don't think what I'm saying is entirely novel in some mm. respects. Perhaps not enough people are saying it. And I don't think it's too odd to say, well, hang on a minute, let's talk about this site. And, and you know, who roams? Who uses this? What pathways do they have? You know, what, what other species are here day and night, winter and summer? And, you know, we might erode some of those paths. We might have destroyed them forever. They will then go and find other routes. Um, but, you know, what impact does that have? We have, you know, eroded our biodiversity incredibly. And I think a lot of the built environment activity is down to that. Um, and whilst we do account for it and we try to quantify those losses, I don't think enough conversation is had at very early stages of, well, how does this implicate on moths or butterflies or, you know, foxes or badgers or whoever else happens to live around here? And I, and I think those conversations need to be had very early on. And I think you're right. Children will think about other species in a much more immediate um, way than we do because um, we become, I think, desensitized as adults. Um, and, and pressurized with time and, um, you know, financial and other pressures, they, they start to take over. So I think we need to become much more sensitive. Series two of the Warrior Women podcast is made in partnership with Zinc VC, a London-based venture capital firm. Zinc are currently looking for 70 talented individuals to participate in a 12-month venture programme aimed at transforming the sectors most impacting the environment. This is a real opportunity for impact-driven individuals to access expert support and up to £250,000 in financial backing to build a venture from scratch. And brilliantly, over 50% of founders on their last venture builder were women. Go to zinc.vc for more information on how to apply. I hear a lot about really how construction, in particular the built environment, is probably the single most challenge to achieving net zero. And I'd really, well, first of all, I'd like your reflections on that. But I'd, I'd really like if you could just help us to understand how the built environment is really causing environmental breakdown? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, buildings start with some kind of extraction and preparation of materials and, and there's an enormous amount of pollution and embodied energy associated with that. And I think harm begins at that point. And we're only now, actually in the last couple of years within our, within the built environment profession, started to talk about that embodied energy. I mean, it wasn't even you know, quantified um, previously. We're only now developing some ad hoc tools to try and, you know, understand that. And, and an awful lot is still missed in that, you know, pollution and waste as part of that extraction is still not, you know, accounted for, nor is water. We're generally just looking at energy. 
Um, and it continues, that, that kind of cycle of harm continues in those initial design stages and those initial conversations and the teams that participate in that, they also cause harm in the, in the materials and resources they use. We very rarely talk about sustainable management of projects in terms of how we manage our own time, how we manage our own transport, and not just the actual building object itself, but the teams themselves, um, you know, what they do and what they use um, is, is really important. And it's been also a bit pushed to its limit. Those design stages have, you know, certainly in my experience, as both a practicing architect and now more recently as a kind of innovator and researcher, they've been compressed. There's less and less time to design, less and less time to think, and therefore less time to appreciate. This particular stage has been incredibly compressed. And there's you know little time to consider implications properly, I feel, of those decisions. There is also, despite an enormous proliferation of tools, to simulate and predict, there still isn't enough of an understanding of implications of those early design decisions, nor an ability to act upon them. And a lot of my research is trying to understand that phase. What's probably more well known is the implication of construction phases or manufacturing and assembly and the harm that carries with it. And um, I think there's been a lot said about that and increasingly the inhabitation of spaces and the harm that brings about our use of resources within those spaces and the harm that has on us and on the environment around buildings. You know, buildings, they, they emit 20% of carbon emissions within just within the UK. And those figures are debatable. I mean, I think it's probably a lot more than that. I'm not entirely sure what sometimes goes into those figures mm -hmm. and how much is missed out. So, I mean, that's what we know about. Um, waste and disposal of buildings carries huge amount of harm with them. And, you know, through all of these stages, there are instances of short, medium and sometimes long term effects of harm. You know, the furniture and materials we put into spaces, they emit harm. Um, we're trying over time to use a lot less harmful materials and, you know, less chemicals, but um, they emit harm that we inhale. So the effects are enormous. And I think buildings are complex. They're effectively living organisms. They are powered, they use water, uh, they are conditioned. You know, we are now in one of the hottest days of the year. And so everyone is conditioning their environments in some ways um, because a lot of our buildings have not been designed to cope with extreme weather events, with flooding, with overheating, with incredible cold. Um, and there is an enormous amount of knowledge still missing to understand how we go about that because our environment that we're living in is hugely uncertain and complex. So I think there are cycles of harm that we still don't fully understand. I've only just touched upon what I think are the key ones that we know to some extent something about, um, but we're not particularly good at representing it. We don't have a good language to communicate it. Um, and some of my research also tries to talk about the need for a better language to communicate and better understand these cycles of harm and how we go about mitigating them to start with and actually eradicating them completely. 
Um, and I think that's a long journey. Mm, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And the thing that I always take from your work is that it seems like you do take quite a novel approach. Um, could you explain to us how that approach is, is kind of breaking new ground? And is it related to this idea of radical architecture practice, which you've co-created a movement around? Yes. Yeah, so raps came about about three, four years ago, although it has been in my mind for some time. And it came about initially as a reaction to what seemed to be largely technocratic and quite reductionist modes of thinking and activity. RAPS is really about proposing an agenda, a new agenda for research, for policy and practice that embodies complexity, that embodies imagination, that embodies visionary thinking, future thinking, and embodies this idea that we're entangled. We're entangled with each other, with technologies, with nature, with other species. And we need to start to think about how we deal with that entanglement without separating it, without reducing it, without simplifying it, without kind of thinking of it as quite a linear thing. So what we're trying to do is develop a new agenda through which we can better see and better imagine an architecture that is sensitive to emergence, to complexity, to interdependence. We are, we are dependent on each other, other species, and, and we share. We share the air we breathe, we share waters, we share land, we share the sun, and yet we have all these borders that you know, separate the way we deal with policy to tackle that, the, the, the way we regulate that, the way we educate ourselves around that. And what we're trying to do is develop a new agenda. I can see from some of your work and, you know, your LinkedIn profile that you have worked and have been working on some really large scale, multi-million pound projects. I know you're still very much at the agenda setting stage and research stage, but are you seeing any of that thinking, making it into practice already? And, and if so, are there any notable projects that maybe you could tell us about? A little bit. I mean, it's still early days. These setting an agenda itself is, is is in itself quite impactful because it can create in your new roles within practice, new ideas of what we could do, uh, and new ways to actually design policy. Uh, there is currently in the UK um, an ongoing change within regulation, within education, certainly within architecture practice, and some of what I've been trying to promote has you know, been informed by that and has informed that climate change curriculum. I would like it to expand much more and to enable this idea of entanglement and architecture beyond building. And it's an ongoing conversation. I mean, we're in the midst of that change, so we are contributing to it. But I'll be able to, I think, say much more on the implications of that and the impact of that probably in a couple of years' time, because sure. um, this is you know, not just within a European context, we're now talking much more globally and talking to people who have, I think, been much faster to grasp ways of seeing and ways of imagining what architects could do, how architecture practice could evolve, that we're trying to bring within the built environment agenda. So exciting. And it's just like, I always have this, and I'm sure I've said it before in this podcast, but it's always... When people say to me, oh, you know, there's there's no hope, it's all kind of 
doom and gloom and I say well I know I meet these people all the time who are working on new thinking new ways of being but we may still be in the transition stage right we may still be not quite the other side but there's definitely something happening are you are you able to talk about the um the net zero housing work that you did I know you had a, a, a was it a paper or a report that was selected for the House of Lords Science and Technology Committee which was about net zero housing specifically how can we build net zero homes yeah <laughs> yeah I mean I think housing is a big problem within the European context or, or, it's, or at least it's promoted to be there certainly is a huge affordability issue and to me housing is 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 a basic need that we all you know should have and it should be accessible to all of us there you know I think this today you know one of the hottest days of the year probably you know shows to everyone how uncomfortable most of our homes are and um the fact that you know we are in a in cost of living and energy crisis and it shouldn't be insurmountable to you know be able to keep ourselves warm or to keep ourselves cool and that comes to you know good housing design and good housing delivery we have an existing housing stock in this country. We have huge amounts of space. You know, we have very complex ownership structures, you know, huge affordability problem. But actually, we do have space around the country and we absolutely desperately need to retrofit our homes. And we need to, you know, in, in very quick terms, develop an infrastructure to do that well. Um, and I feel that's where a lot of net zero will come about. To start with, we need to deal with our existing infrastructure and develop the design capability to look at different typologies of home, to look at different needs that we have within those homes, to understand how we retrofit well for the longer term and not develop inherent other you know, health and other problems as we do that. And yet we're still nowhere near achieving that, despite all of the policy and other changes. Um, you know, our 29 odd million homes, you know, an X amount of that has not been retrofitted. Um, and, you know, this is what will resolve a lot of our um, energy vulnerabilities that are, you know, currently being exasperated and will probably continue to be exasperated. Mm. For those who don't know, could you just explain what retrofitting means? So insulating our homes, you know, having better, you know, windows and walls and roofs to be able to deal with extreme weather and, and to keep ourselves comfortable so that we're not spending enormous amounts of energy to either heat or cool our homes. You know, for me, retrofitting is more than that, is actually being able to understand how we maintain our environments in the longer term and, you know, how we could do that equitably, how we can share our resources. So if we have a street and say, I'd like to retrofit, you know, my home was built in 1943, actually during the war, and quite a lot of others around about my street have too. Um, you know, for a lot of those, you know, homeowners, they, they are struggling to find ways to do that in a shared economy. We should be able to, you know, find a way to share resources to do that on a street by street basis rather than on an individual basis. I mean, this is where the biggest problems are emerging in supply chains is dealing with this on an individual basis. We need to develop more shared 
equitable collective approaches. This is not, none of this will be solved if we do things as individuals. Mm. I feel like that's uh, every time one of these episodes, I feel like there's a book title in it. And that, I think that's it. <laughs> I, none of this will be solved by the individual. You're leading the delivery of, of multiple research and innovation projects. You sound as busy as me. <laughs> And uh, when I was yeah. reading about your work, there was quite a few words that, or, or areas that I thought, I'm not entirely sure I know what that is. And that often leads to some really interesting work. So, for example, you, I read about your work in interrelated energy governance systems and socio-spatial intelligent energy governance. And I wondered if you could tell us what those systems are and um why kind of transforming them, I guess, is so important. Yeah, I mean, those are quite <laughs> un un unnecessarily complex, you know, probably, you know, words that I'm going to say it means, heat it means heating. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I got very obsessed with energy, everything to do with energy, um, you know, a couple of, you know, years ago. And that's not just, you know, energy as in heating, cooling, but energy as, you know, our, our own energy that we use to power ourselves and our organisms. And, you know, as I got kind of deeper into the topic, it became, you know, quite obvious that, you know, the way we use energy around the activities that we do in our home and elsewhere are part of how we use space and part of how we relate to each other. And these are entangled and interdependent. Um, and a lot of my research has, you know, is trying to tackle that and develop methods that through which we can study that. If we, I mean, is this just capitalism as well, which is just, you know, we've literally stopped thinking about human beings and nature and we're just, it just, it just really shocks me, I think, when I, when I have the privilege of having these hours with just in, incredible, incredible global thinkers. And it gives you a moment to just kind of think about how, just how broken these rooms are that are sitting there talking about energy or talking about housing and how we're thinking about efficiency and making more money from them and that it's seen as radical radical architecture to have to say okay let's start thinking about people and how people feel and how nature feels and it always comes back to capitalism and you say the industrialization that's happened the pushing people to just make more and do more I'm not sure there's really a point at the end of this I think I just it's it always you know we can talk about changing systems we can talk about changing policy but how can we get people in power to drop into to drop into that humanness again when my son was about seven eight years old um we ended up you know he had lots of coughing kind of problems and um, you know, we were at the time living on quite a busy street across the park. And I, and I kind of thought, you know, the park must, you know, alleviate any kind of pollution or kind of noise issues. Um, it never kind of struck the doctors at any point. You know, they eventually diagnosed him with asthma, which I found quite difficult to accept because he was about seven, eight years old. No, no particular symptoms up until that point. Um and I started investigating this, you know, the prevalence of asthma in children, living on busy roads, you know, I started to effectively map his life and, and then realised that his school was on a busy road 
our home was on a busy road. His entire, you know, the level at which he walks, he was breathing in all these fumes all day long. Um, I, you know, he was given three different steroids to take. And and I kept telling the pediatrician, surely, you know, this study I've done on on what he's inhaling is causing this. this. This can't just be potentially genetic. Um, there are studies that you know people must have done on this, and I'm and I'm not in the medical kind of profession, so it's always difficult talking to other you know professionals about you know things you find and things you've studied. So he wasn't he wasn't entertaining any of it. Um, I decided very quickly within a couple of weeks, despite loving that home, to sell our home, to move schools to a school that kind of is on a near, near the seafront, to go to a home that's up on a hillside away from busy roads. I'm not sure if this is all coincidental, but his coughing stopped uh, completely. Um, and the pediatrician said he doesn't know what happened. I changed his environment, basically, so that he wasn't inhaling potentially polluting air that I felt was causing the coughing. It's not scientifically proven, but um, we don't tend to account for all these different implications on different people, the little people and what they see and the level that you know their lives occur at, us and what we do, but also other species. And I think we need to spend much more time at those early design stages that, you know, I mentioned we're getting yet more and more compressed to understand implications of our design decisions, where we place buildings, you know, how we, you know, conduct transport. Okay, we're electrifying and we're going to move towards that. That will come with certain implications as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, buildings pollute, they emit, you know, they are built with a huge amount of different chemical um, material that in itself emits in ways that we can't see. I mean, there are two major issues that I feel are invisible. One is energy that we use and that is polluting in itself. And one is air that we depend on, that we can't see the pollution in. And that is um, a massive issue for the built environment and how we deal with it. It's not just about transport. It's not just about industries. It's how we place buildings and how we design streets and streetscapes and what that creates, the, the way it kind of enables air to move and clear. That's what an amazing warrior mama to do that. But, I mean, it absolutely stands up from what I could hear. And, of course, there was... Um, there was legal history made when a coroner ruled that air pollution was the cause of death for a nine-year-old girl who was living about 30 metres from London's South Circular. And I think it was in 2013, she died from acute respiratory failure and uh, there was sort of severe asthma and air pollution exposure. You know, so this is this is a real issue. And I think it's really interesting when... We look at, we were just talking about the political agenda, but I would imagine that if we are still thinking in this sort of units of investment, then having, you know, having scaled data that would be able to say this many, you know, children are suffering from asthma as a result of pollution is probably something. I mean, let's be honest, there's a lot of corruption out there that they don't want to happen. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to right children off as having asthma right and so there are some very very real concerns and um one of the 
the things I think that you said on the podcast launch is that, you know, and we've had other warriors say this as well. In fact, our our fishing warrior who who has been, we've released the episode. She said, we must speak up for the things that can't speak up for themselves. And she was talking about fish. And to a lot of extent, we're also talking about children. We're also talking about the ants that I said, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but there is this sense of the voiceless as well and our duty to speak up for them. So I think that's a, a really important part of this story. It's not just, you know, better heat, heating solutions or better energy solutions. It's about people. It's about real pain and, and harm as well. Um, it's always really, really, I mean, warrior women are all about people who are leading us into a more hopeful place with solutions. So although we sometimes touch on some of the darker, more troubling uh, insights from, from these conversations, I'd be lo- I'd sort of love to hear from you, and then you must have seen a lot, what's some of the most progressive thinking, obviously you've mentioned a lot of it already, that you've seen around the built environment space that kind of gives you hope that we can find ways to live more in harmony with the earth and each other? Yeah, I mean, there is a, <laughs> it's really difficult actually to single out, um, you know, particular things or people because I feel there's a lot of really interesting collective things that are going on, not specifically in the built environment, but, you know, with implications to the built environment. And I have to go back to these recorded sessions by this philosopher Bruno Latour, and I would encourage anyone to, to, to you know listen in on them because they're really profound, and I think you know his work is incredibly progressive. He talks about us sensing a new world where living beings and living things, rather than objects, take center stage, and he talks about hope, you know, and as being quite hopeful as humans, being able to shift towards you know a new planetary future. Um, And he refers to this thing called Gaia, which was initially proposed by another scientist, Lovelock and others, um, named after the ancient Greek goddess of Earth. You know, they they kind of suggested that Earth and its biological systems behave as huge, as a huge single entity. And I think, to me, you know, that type of work and thinking that is enabling us to shift our mode of operation our ways of behaving, our ways of relating to each other, in my mind, is progressive and will enable us to, therefore, you know, create, design, inhabit, use, reuse buildings in a similar kind of sensitive and caring manner. Um, and I think, to me, you know, that that kind of singles out. There's a, there's a lot of other things that are happening that are probably what I would call short-term or mid-term, you know, progressive pieces of work that all join up into one big whole. But to, to me, you need an agenda, you, you need a way of approaching, thinking or understanding the world to start with. Um, and because we operate in market-based economies, in, you know, this neoliberal way of thinking and living, it does mean that we're quite fragmented in what we do. There's an awful lot of individually... Um, led, you know, great work, and in its own right, within its own sphere, it's it's amazing. But what we're not doing is connecting and coordinating, um, and we seem to have lost that kind of way of connecting and coordinating work. 
um, because we don't operate in a coordinated collective way. Mm. And to me, that that is, you know, what will make something small that's potentially progressive work if it's connected to other kind of progressive things. Um, so I think Latour's work, you know, talks about that. You know, how do we join things up? How do we think in a collective way? And that means changing our governance mechanisms. You know, we are forever eroding this idea of needing local government, needing some type of governance regime and relying on markets to sort things out. Uh, I'm not sure what is then sorted out in that reliance other than, yes, somebody somewhere will make a lot of profit, somebody somewhere will gain, but we won't have a holistic understanding of very much. Um, and I think to me that those little progressive ideas can only be meaningful if they're coordinated. It seems to be on this series at the end of each episode, we have kind of a call for revolution. (laughs) (laughs) Take from that what you will. The sponsor for series two, which is Zinc VC, who you, you met some of the team at the podcast launch, they are identifying sort of 70 individuals through an application process who will come and work with them to develop from scratch solutions that address some of the b2b sectors that are doing the most environmental harm one of which is kind of construction in the built environment and i would love for just for a moment to sort of sit with you and say imagine you have sort of 70 of these individuals in front of you and they have some experience in the construction space maybe there's researchers there's data scientists there's you know there may be even doctors people who are very connected to driving social impact what what advice would you give to them in terms of where to focus their efforts what kind of ventures they should be building that you think have a chance of transforming this this sort of area of the built environment Oh my God, <laughs> there, are, there are so many, so many issues to tackle that I almost think, you know, um, just start with, with anything that you find meaningful within your own locality. And I think context is key. We talk a lot about place-based solutions. I think what we need to deviate from is trying to find solutions that work for everyone and to generalize or standardize. We need to learn from each other. We need to share knowledge, but we also need to understand context. And, you know, we, we might be working in this European context that where, you know, a large amount of the population, you know, has access to, to housing, to water, to energy, um, and, you know, in some ways, you know, everyone should have access to this and yet they don't. Um, so one of my cousins, and I don't know if he would mind me mentioning this, contacted me a while ago. His, his wife is from Cameroon and um, he's trying to set up um, some kind of typological approach to a community health and education facility that could be replicated at low cost, low carbon. And, um, you know, finding it really difficult to get funding for this type of work where in communities that do not have access to drinking water, do not have access to any type of energy source other than the sun, uh, have, you know, some quite severe security and other issues. Um, very little access to, you know, building materials um, that could be, you know, delivered at scale. 
Um, I mean, these are, you know, to me, really, really important issues that need to be resolved, you know, quickly. This should be at the forefront of, of everyone's mind. Um, on the other hand, you know, we have half of the global population living in informal settlements and slums. Um, you know, th and, and this is growing. This number is growing in areas of the world that are dealing with not, you know, what we have today, which is uh, where I am, about 36, 38 degrees, but something like 50 degrees Celsius. And, um, you know, just inhumane conditions. You know, there needs to be you know, solutions developed within contexts um, like that very quickly. I'm sure we could hold court with you for three days and you'd still have more solutions we should be looking at. But I think that gives a really good viewpoint of just how many different opportunity areas there are. What other women are doing great work in this space that you'd like to amplify by mentioning them on this podcast? Again, I always feel that I'm going to miss someone out because I feel there are... Every, everybody says so, that. Everybody says that. You know, it's really hard for me to single anyone out because I think there are so many amazing women that do amazing things on a daily basis. But um, there are currently actually elections going on in the Royal Institute for British Architects, the professional body that you know, oversees, you know, um, architecture practice within the UK. And I, and I wanted to amplify Sumita Singha, who is running for the next kind of president for the IBA. And she set up something called Architects for Change, um, an equality forum for the RIBA. Um, and, and she's someone who's done an enormous amount of work around people and culture and equality within the architecture practice. Um, kind of forum widely and to me people like that need to be amplified need to be given uh, you know a way forward to you know achieve the sorts of things that they've been trying to do for their entire life to be honest um, so I thought quite hard about this because you know I could go on and name a list that was hundreds long but I feel because of you know the fact that I am mainly talking about architecture practice and there is something going on in the UK at the moment and I wanted to kind of you know raise the profile of Sumita and um, you know hope that you know she, she gains traction because people like that who have fought their entire life for inclusivity and equality and representation of women you know within a profession that's you know been largely monolithic and not particularly diverse although things are changing uh, is is really important to me so mm. i would say definitely sumita singer thank you thank you for such an inspiring conversation and um what's the what's the best way that people can find you and kind of keep up with your work are you big on twitter or is it more of a find you on LinkedIn? How, how best can people find you? Actually, academics generally are very easy to find. You can even find my email address just by Googling yeah. me. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm definitely not difficult to find in that sense. <laughs> and always open to, you know, conversations and, um, you know, meeting new people um, and, you know, discovering new ideas. You know, anyone who wants to, you know, help on this journey, you know, especially within the architecture profession, but more widely. I mean, we're all architects of our, you know, of our current and, and future, you know, ways of being. Um, every single one of us. And, and so I'm interested in everyone who's interested in, 
you know, how we shape our futures, because I think space is a massive part of that, whether that's external or internal. And we're all creating that and recreating it on a daily basis. So anyone who's interested in ways that we could do that, that isn't harmful to all of us, I'm keen to talk to. I love that. I love that whole the way that you just decentralized it then and said everyone can be an architect of the future in our lives. So thank you. What a great line to end on. Have a great day and rest of the week. And I hope that you um, have a fan in the house in this 40 degree heat. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Carla. Thank you very much. I'm Carla. You've been listening to Warrior Women, the podcast by the Warrior Women Network, brought to you by Zinc VC and produced by Birdline Media.